Welcome to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Englander. Today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. And a big problem that we run into is that agencies are finally getting serious about growth. They know generally who they want to go after. They get to the point of going through several failed experiments. Maybe they have invested in paid media or creative or articles, and maybe they hired a salesperson in the past that promised a big Rolodex, and that didn't work. And then they went back to referrals, and that didn't work for a while. And now they're finally coming back to the point of saying, okay, we're finally going to get our act together. We're going to make the right hires. We're going to really build out our sales process. But then it becomes a rinse and repeat cycle again because they run into the same problems in a new way. And we've created a checklist that accumulates all the experience that we've gotten from working with dozens of agencies running over 7,000 campaigns and so on to make sure that the agency is successful long-term and is getting new opportunities into the pipeline constantly. And in the agency new business checklist, what you're going to expect is eight steps for building a sustainable revenue engine for your organization. This is making sure that things are set up the right way before you go in this or that way tactically. So what you're going to find there is a list on how to identify ideal high growth verticals where your agency can win beyond what you might be already thinking of. You're going to learn how to craft your 12-month outreach calendar so you can maintain consistency no matter what. And perhaps most importantly, you're going to figure out how to either build, you know, hire, or at least assign your three-person sales support pod so that you or your higher level new business person can spend 99% of his or her time on the stuff that actually moves the needle on business generating activities like pitching, thinking creatively, talking to qualified prospects and so on. So if you want to get that, you can go to saleschema.com slash checklist. Again, saleschema.com slash checklist. So today marks the first of what I hope will be many episodes about data. And it's an important concept or an important topic because it can be used as an extremely powerful tool. It can be used to get tons of leverage for your agency and for your clients, or it can be used to just confuse and deceive and make life terrible and to send you off in the wrong direction. And I think today's guest is extremely qualified to talk about the concept of consumer data. And that person is Matt Blasco. So Matt is the former global head of advanced analytics at Havas Group, and he currently runs Buzz Insider. Um, at Buzz Insider, he is partnering with agencies of all stripes, large and small, to help them set the right data foundation, pitch on campaigns, and basically communicate what matters to clients. And super interestingly, Matt was there looking at the numbers for the Doseki's most interesting man in the world campaign. And more interestingly, there were all sorts of client service lessons embedded in this episode that I didn't expect, talking about how you handle situations where there's lots of CMO attrition, staying ahead of that issue, and also just the future of data and what it's going to mean for agencies large and small. So without further ado, please give it up for Matt Blasco. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Dan. Yeah, absolutely. So this I'm kind of thinking about as as the ultimate data episode, and you have had a lot of experience in, in the, the holding company world and the big agency world with with data. So I'd love it if you could go into your background a little bit. You know, how did you get to where you are now, and what's been your experience with with data throughout that? 
Sure. The data was a, a long and winding path that uh, <laughs> kind of unintentional, but that's how most of us get where we are, I guess. I studied economics and math. And so in a sense, it seemed like that would have been the foregone conclusion. I had done a, uh, during college, an internship at one of the banks uh, doing private wealth and realized that that was uh, absolutely not for me and tried to avoid finance at all costs and actually ended up doing a, um, an internship with Red Bull and got into guerrilla marketing. And it was just, that was really exciting. So working on everything from the flug tag where people flew flying machines into the Hudson River to giant concerts in Central Park with like DJ Tiesto and driving around a little Red Bull machine and just really understanding at like the, the power of kind of storytelling and and lore to uh, to drive a brand. My dad was kind of always into technology and electronics, so I did that a lot growing up with him and kind of figured that was where I was going to end up. Got an offer from after college to work at Modem Media doing kind of digital strategy and analytics and seemed really interesting. In retrospect, I know that uh, you know, a junior person really doesn't know a tremendous lot about strategy. <laughs> so like uh, most junior people there, they threw me into this team that did analytics which therefore became kind of my pathway. And it was doing a lot of reporting for big CPG companies, uh, Kraft. We worked on every single one of their brands. And I spent many a night sleeping under the uh, desk at work because I had 40 different reports that I had to get done by the end of the week. I guess from there, I joined Havas about a decade ago. I was asked to build up the creative analytics team, which now seems kind of commonplace that you'd have data and insights together working across the variety of paths. But it was kind of new then. And the idea of, of having someone that just focused on, on looking at data it was pretty innovative there. So I worked on a, a, a number of campaigns uh, that I'll get into in a bit with you while at Havas. And, and eventually Vivendi had bought Havas and kind of brought the whole holding company into this content entertainment group. So the focus really became on how do we collaborate with all the entities, which is very commonplace uh, need for many companies at this point. But uh, what I thought was interesting was looking at data and analytics to focus on what is the return on kind of content and creative. So more than just return on like media spend, what else is there that we can kind of tweak out of, of the analysis? Yeah, that's really great. And we've talked before and you've definitely done some interesting projects when you're at Havas and then beyond. So I'd love it if you could go into some examples of those and and also like what how you thought about data in those situations, how you thought about the difference between, you know, what's legible and what's not and what's important. Absolutely. So yeah, I've worked on a, a host of interesting projects and brands through healthcare and financial services. I, one of the, the earlier ones was Charles Schwab and Talk to Chuck. That whole idea um, really brought billions of dollars out of kind of private wealth management into the uh, this DIY self-investing and, and made that really mainstream. So I thought that was one of the, the really interesting projects to work on. And, and this concept of truth and speaking to the camera was something that uh, we, we did a lot with that and, and through a lot of the other work. And again, I'm not going to claim credit for all the creative work, but I, I helped pull a lot of the insights for the campaign and understanding who are the people that we are going after and, and, and the motivations. And, and so that came from a, a host of just surveys and, and what are people searching for? You know, looking at syndicated research to understand who they really are. And the next big campaign that I that I thought was a lot of fun was working on Liberty Mutual and kind of rethinking the the insurance brand. As you've probably noticed, if you've ever watched anything on TV, Geico and some of these other guys, Allstate, uh, spend well in excess of a billion dollars a year 
advertising their insurance products. And the, the second tier players are literally at like a third or a fourth of that uh, type of spend. So they really have to learn how to punch above their weight. One of the things that we did just from data analysis is looking at, at color patterns and, and seeing like what are the most common colors that are popping. Liberty Mutual was, was blue and uh, just like all of the other ones, blue and red. So that's where we move towards like a yellow pattern and this idea of illumination with them and really focused on getting them to, to punch above their weight using any of those little digital tricks that we could, the insights that we can find. And then moving on to, to TD Ameritrade, that became uh, one of our other really large clients that we looked at all sorts of behavioral data and were really innovative in how we, we marketed people digitally, looking at what did they search for on Yahoo, for instance, and how do we get in front of them, leveraging that to, to see whether or not the fact that they just looked at a stock ticker would make them more likely to, to look at our advertising. And I guess it goes without saying that the most interesting campaign uh, already had that as its tagline. So our yeah. team had about a nine-year run with Dos Equis, and we created the myth of the most interesting man in the world. And it was just a phenomenal asset for the, the brand at, at creating long-term sales growth. Year over year, there were times when we exceeded 27% year-over-year growth, while the beer market, as you may know, is flat and then sometimes even down. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and I know that you're, you were um, at the forefront of that campaign taking shape, and I'd love to hear the story about how, you, not necessarily you alone, but how you as a team came up with that. Yeah, and it was probably one of the most fascinating things in, in just kind of going with your gut too at, at some point. It, it didn't pass the link test. So a lot of the standard testing that's done that, that brands rely on didn't go so well when we tested that campaign. And, and one of the, the nuggets of truth that we found in doing a lot of qualitative research was that young men would rather be dead than dull. And so this idea of just being like the guy at the party that had nothing to say, like really freaked a lot of people out. And it's something that held true, not only with the, the target younger market we looked at, but older men like incredibly saw the, the, the truth in that too. And the campaign actually ended up doing really well with them. We, we'd initially tested it with some some younger people and it didn't get the, uh, the response that we had hoped for. And Johnson Goldsmith, the, the, the character who became the most interesting man, kind of walked in and it was this perfect blend of kind of like you wanted to be like this person at some point. And from just uh, tying back the data into that, I apologize for the, the divergence. But Please. what we did with was looking at kind of a lot of uh, search trends and, uh, and such to see kind of what people were looking for w within the, the research itself, just understanding what was kind of par for the course for beer advertising at the time and trying to figure out how do we differentiate ourselves. And this concept of interesting just kept coming up. And so that's where we, we really dug into it. And one of the things that we spoke about earlier that was really neat with data was how simple things that you can do with data can oftentimes be what you rely on to, to make some critical decisions. Uh, we didn't need a five terabyte data stack to tell us whether or not mm -hmm. this was doing well for the brand. But one of the things that we saw was that uh, Heideken, who owned Dosecki's, was having quite a bit of turnover with their CMOs. And so a lot of their brands were turning over campaigns quite rapidly. And we were being asked, like, should this campaign stay on the air? And we leveraged Google Trends, simple as that, to look at the, the queries for Dosecki's versus the most interesting man to see whether or not they were in lockstep or if, if uh, the most interesting man was starting to kind of supersede the brand. And our recommendation was that while the two kind of stayed step in step, that we should stick with the brand and uh, that the, the equity to the brand was moving with this, uh, this character. 
Sure. I really want to dig into the data, so I'm not going to shortchange you on that because it's super interesting. But to back up just a little bit, how did the client receive this when you first pitched the most interesting man thing? Because usually you think of beer ads and it's a bunch of you know half-naked, beautiful young people on a beach, and this was definitely a divergence from that. So I'd love if you could talk a little bit about the, the initial reception. Yeah, and, and I think that's kind of what all Mexican beers were too, and particularly at the time. So, I mean, your Corona, your Mandela, and, and your Dos Equis all played from that same playbook. And, and that's where we were kind of trying to step into something different and to be a little bit more unique and in cutting edge. And, and I mean, one of the, the tagline of the character is that I don't always drink beer. This idea of, of, of honesty and, and something different was something that the client was a bit hesitant about. And, and it took a little bit of coercing and the agency team was really believed in it. And the, the creative directors had done an awesome job with it. And, but I'm not going to lie and say like they saw it and just like immediately let's throw this on the air without hesitation. A lot of the, the great, campaigns that we've worked on have taken quite a bit of coercing and showing the client that that these are the trends that we're seeing, particularly with this demographic that you're going after. And so it was a lot of research that had to kind of show them that this concept of, of, of being boring was really so powerful. Or not being boring. And was there was there a moment that you remember where it clicked with the client, where there was like this Don Draper situation where they got it, or was it sort of like a process and they just had to really internalize the data and all that? I remember the time when they first saw it getting spoofed, and that was when it was kind of like this is like smiles on faces. Like I think the Daily Show had uh, uh, John Stewart had made fun of the most interesting man, or. Uh, in some regard, but in in such a way that it's like, okay, this is a mainstream campaign where we're being, you know, 10x overspent by a Bud Light, but people know this brand and are stay thirsty. My friend became really relevant. So we, we were responsible for all of the social media pages as well. And in dealing with uh, Facebook really early on, again, this was back in 2008, 2009. You know, there, we had a team that was basically like sitcom writers that would be writing these these lines for him for the, the TV spots and the radio spots. I remember we had a day that there was almost 6,800 people that wrote on the Facebook page. <laughs> and most of these people are writing in their own lines. And so, like, if you could go back over the course of 10 years and look at how many, like, people submitted their own, like, legend lines, like... <laughs> It would probably be like hundreds of thousands at the minimum. And so it's like at at some point, there's probably no way a team could have come up with something that was unique that someone else hadn't already said. Yeah. And uh, I don't want to get too hung up on on the storytelling for Dos Equis, although it is super interesting because I do want to get to the data stuff, which is is your specialty. But just, you know, I guess one last question on that. Like, how did you what was the process of crowdsourcing those lines? How did you decide what was going to rise to the top and getting, getting ones like, you know, when he goes to museums, he's allowed to touch the art and those sort of gems. So for a long time, it, there was always this kind of weird thing about anything that you got off the internet in terms of being able to use it kind of like ownership. So for the longest time, they were all our lines that ever made it into one of the spots. Mm-hmm. So it, it made it a little easier, just uh, the cautiousness of, of legal teams at brands. Yeah. But you still got that interaction, which was kind of, Oh point, yeah, absolutely. So and, that's, and that's, that's what important. I think people really liked was just being able to kind of, you know, one up each other and sort yeah. of a value of being interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So, so back to the data, you're talking about just a simple Google trends analysis as opposed to anything like proprietary is, is helping you out. And you're worried about, you know, 
the most interesting man kind of outpacing the the brand in terms of of you know notoriety what what's the fear there like what what's that scenario you're worried about if the most interesting man starts to dwarf dosakis it's just that it's there's like we you miss out on the linkage so it, it could be something that becomes incredibly popular and like a cultural meme but if it's not driving people to you know, pick up another case of Dosecchi's when they're planning for the weekend, it, it's really not helping. And, and you know, in, in the modern era of content creation, that does seem to be where people are moving a bit more towards. But at the same time, everybody wants to make sure they're, they're selling their product. And so that was the key to make sure that we still had the linkage to the, the product itself and made sure that we continued to get people to, to ask for it on premise or, you know, pick it up when they were off premise. Right, right. That makes sense. And can you talk about, about the, we've talked in the past about the link to, to media spend versus creative and especially, you know, as using Dos Equis as a case study. Um, I'd love if you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. So we did a lot of work trying to understand kind of like what is the, what is the anticipated amount that you should be spending on kind of uh, ads as a creative agency, like between talent or the artwork or whatever it may be, just uh, as a percentage of the of your media spend. And invariably, it so it always came in somewhere between about 10 and 20% of whatever you spent to create to put the ad on air is what you'd spend with the, the whole production of, of the ad itself. And so particularly with a lot of the bigger financial service clients and, and we looked at that because they really wanted to understand how what was that kind of ideal balance that they should be looking at to ensure that it's quality enough of a an ad that it's going to get the attention and move the emotions of, of people, but maximizing as much as they can to, to put it out there. Right. And, and with that in mind, one thing that you've, you've talked about in the past is the idea that, that sometimes media doesn't deserve the spin that it's getting compared to the creative. Can you go into that a little bit? Sure. I, I think a couple of these campaigns were, were pretty much case in point the Charles Schwab campaign and the Dos Equis, and they so far exceeded kind of what you'd expect just a, a traditional media placement to do that there, there's obviously an impact coming from creative. And a lot of the market mix modeling uh, that's done focuses really heavily on kind of the, the channel and placements. And so understanding like which, you know, is it in digital that's that's working really hard for us? Or is it, it you know, it, and in antiquated terms now, the print media but th- these were big questions that people wanted to understand where are those points of diminishing return and how do we maximize where we're spending the media. And so now we're seeing a lot more, obviously, getting into the attribution space with digital and trying to get down to pinpoint very specific you know, placements and, and creatives. But understanding what are all of those elements? Content, as I mentioned before, is becoming a much larger theme, native advertising, people trying to make things that look more uh, like they belong, you know, alongside uh, articles, like uh, content that they've done with in conjunction with like the New York Times or something like that, that doesn't give someone the vibe that this is an ad. And so the more things look natural, the, the higher the chance of it performing. And so the the better we can get at understanding what are those individual elements and how much credit should they be getting, 
helps us kind of put some math behind the creativity in the media. Right, right. And, and sort of tied to that is this idea, you know, where Dosakis, you have this massive runaway hit. Old Spice also comes to mind, you know, with the different agency, I think. What's what's with that? Like, why are there, there are these like once in a decade hits and then you don't hear about that brand, you know, sometimes for a long time after? Sure. And that's what we were, that, that's exactly the concern that we had with Dosakis. The, the most, the Old Spice gentleman, that it was a hugely viral, but it lasted for like about a year and a half, maybe. And it really didn't move the needle a tremendous amount on the, the sales in comparison, like the continued sales. And so that's what you're trying to avoid is just something that that comes and goes. And and so that's why we're, we're putting a lot of the effort into figuring out how do we make these ad campaigns sustainable? I mean, if you look at like some of the, uh, the Air Force or, or, or Army campaigns, some of these campaigns have been on the air for 25, 30 years. <laughs> that's obviously as an agency what you'd, you'd hope to find a client that's willing to stick with you on in a duration like that. Yeah. And, and can you go into that a bit? Like how, how did it pan out with, with Dos Equis and and what's, you know, when, when things do go through this attrition, even when you guys do really well, like what's happening there? Sure. I mean, and, and one of the things that we talked about was this, the CMO tenure has been getting shorter and so what's that, that's been kind of doing to the, the, the downstream effect on the, the agencies and campaigns is that, you know, some reason the CMO is perceived as kind of the low man on the totem pole of the C-suite. And I think that's because their decisions are perceived as shorter term. And therefore, a CEO thinks they can probably drop in a new CMO, kind of like an iOS update, and things will just get fixed. But branding, like everything else, takes takes patience. And you really have to see some of these campaigns through. Just like, a, you know, a new financial software or ERP system investment, like, you're not going to let us bring in a CFO, have them install something new like this. And then after a year, if you're not seeing efficiencies, let the CFO go. But as a result of that, the, the, the C-suite, they're trying to really prove themselves when they come in, particularly the CMO. And so they often bring with them kind of like their agencies of the past. And what that does is it creates kind of a, a ton of churn within the advertising space because there's often these reviews that are happening far more frequently than they, they had in the past. And they're, be it their, their holistic agency or specialist teams that they work for are really starting to create this environment where there's just a, a lot more competition going on for pieces of business within the advertising world. Right. And where, where do you see it going? I mean, do you see CMO tenure to continue to just shrink and be volatile and you basically have all these like free agents just bouncing around between companies? Or do you think that people are starting to get the idea that stuff is long-term and <laughs> you need to think, you, need to think, I, you know, I, f- further out? Yeah, I do think we're finally starting to see that swing back in the, the, the correct direction and that people are giving it time. A lot of it too was these these big ad tech players that the Google and Facebooks of the world that, uh, you know, you came in, you could have a, a junior intern that can buy your ads on Facebook and, and do your AdWord campaign. And, you know, as a lot of agencies started shifting more and more dollars towards that, there became a lot of questions of like, what value am I getting from these teams? And so this whole shift towards in-housing was happening. And a lot of uh, perfect storm was kind of in place for the agency world. Yeah, yeah. And, and now it seems to be going back the other way. And, and with that in mind, we've talked in the past about MarTech and the rise of, Mar- of MarTech and its effect on CMO tenure and, you know, the space in general. So I'd love it if you can go into that a little bit. Sure, yeah. And as you're saying, just the, the, the number of MarTech vendors out there has just been a, a 
exponentially growing figure. We saw, you know, a decade ago, they had that chart that had the you know, 50 logos on it that created the MarTech space. And now if you look at the same images, probably like a three by three pixel is all that you get for those, those logos. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, it's understanding kind of like what you need for your business versus just this can add some incremental value because there, there's a tremendous amount of, of really smart, great thinking in these MarTech providers. But at the end of the day, most of the, the value in is coming from just a couple large players where, where advertisers are putting their money. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we've really hitched our wagons to the idea that the boutique agency gives brands lots of leverage. And with, with that in mind, you know, with the idea that there's all these boutiques and 50,000 some MarTech companies... Do you see it swinging back the other way? Do you see a situation where the agency of record kind of regains its old footing? I do think they have an opportunity to do that, particularly as like a, a lot of the organizations, you know, with, with all of the, the workflow tools, the Trellos and Slacks and trying to make everything more efficient in collaboration. I, I think a lot of the, the large companies are seeing the inefficiencies that exist when you have far too many partners involved. And this is one of the things that we saw with some of our large clients is that they would try to bring these people together just to get on brief, like to what, what, what are we trying to do? Who's our, who's our target? And, you know, what are the personas? Where are we going to market to them? And, and everybody kind of, you know, for better, or for worse, brings their own stuff to the table. But at, at the end of the day, if they're not getting on the same page and kind of marching to the same tune, then, then you're creating more kind of work. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and to zoom forward, you know, a little bit to the future, I'd love to, to learn about what you're doing with, with, Buzz, with Buzz Insider now and how, you know, how agencies can think about data and use, use it the right way, especially if they don't have all the same resources that a Havas of the world might have. Sure. So, yeah, what we're trying to do is, is figure out how to help agencies and smaller agencies really understand what to do with their data. And, and you know, data is not a, a, an ends. It, it's the means to the ends. And particularly with the boutiques, it's understanding what are the goals and objectives that you're trying to achieve with the client. And ultimately, that is probably what they're trying to achieve for their, their consumer. So what, what does the consumer need? What do they love, hate? And, and therefore, what is the client trying to achieve? We're really moving into this world of kind of like CX and, and customer experience, you know, as a result of, you know, thank you, Mr. Jobs and your Apple products. But now the, the level of expectation that you have from your phone is what people expect, you know, within B2B, within every element of their interaction with brands. So what we've been trying to do is really help people understand where the gaps lie between customer expectation of your category and where the brand is delivering. So not necessarily the low-hanging fruit of like, do this because it's the easiest thing, but where are we going to get the most impact from an improvement? And so I think this is how boutique agencies can really start to move upstream and be per- perceived as more of a partner as opposed to a vendor. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and with that, you've talked about the importance of really understanding how your client's business operates. Can, can you go into that a little bit more and, and kind of what that looks like and maybe you know the, the unique leverage that a boutique can provide that others can't? Sure. One of the nice things on a boutique agency is that 
you know, they're, they're really dedicated to understanding that client and that brand, and they may not be spread out across you know, a whole host of, of smaller allocations with the senior management team. One of the things that we had done with one of our clients that was probably one of the most eye-opening experiences for me was when a client came in with a pie chart that had no numbers on it, no labels, and just said, this is our business, and this is how we make money, and asked us if we could figure out which of those slices of the pie were different types of of ways that they made money. And in this instance, it was a financial services client. And, you know, most of our team just assumed that it all came from trading. And lo and behold, the, the trading was a, a relatively small sliver compared to what the uh, you know, assets under management brought in and why financial service is always trying to get larger and larger uh, assets under management is because they're swapping out these funds overnight that aren't invested. And so as the interest rate starts to climb back up, which is what they're all hoping for, they're going to be able to generate streams of revenue that far exceed those transactional ones coming from the, the daily trades or, or fees on, on services. Right, which which implies kind of longer term thinking yeah. on the part of the agency. And, and so that, that's something that I just recommend that, you know, every agency obviously go through that practice with their, you know, their customers and, and truly understand where where is the money coming from now and where is it going to be in the future? Because as you're trying to build out the communications for these guys, you certainly need to understand what it is that, that they're dealing with beyond just kind of the the siloed view of what it is you're 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 delivering to them. Right, right. And the good the good news is if you're a boutique, you're going to have a lot more ability to do that than a bigger agency because you can get to know your, your customer a lot better, your client. And there are, there are a couple of you know, heuristics that you mentioned that I think could be really helpful to agencies that are kind of seeking to simplify how they think about data and actually use it. One was the five S's and the other were was the data ABC. So I'd love it if you could go into those a little bit. Sure. Yeah, the, uh, the data ABCs is just kind of how I always try to reframe things up and make it simple for understanding how to tell a story with data. It's not just kind of what the behaviors are of the audience, and it's not just the attitudes. It's the attitudes, behaviors. And then the question that I get most often from all clients is, is that good? So some sort of comparative metrics and data. So relativity. So that, that could be the conversions, that can be your, your compared uh, your market share, your share of, of visits to the site or share of uh, social conversations. But when you put all of those three types of data together, you start to really get a full picture of what's going on. Otherwise, as I said before, you can start to get blinders. If you're just looking at like perceptional metrics, you, you may not understand what people are actually doing. The, the behavioral data is great, but I mean, that tells you someone's in market, but, but may not tell you that their their feelings towards your brand or towards your competitive brands. If you're everything I always kind of put into kind of a, a bell curve what, when I think about things, and there's three essentially types of, of people that fall into that for a brand. So if you're thinking about like net promoter score, you've got your people that love you. Those are your uh, advocates, kind of like your, your tens. You've got your uh, adversaries that are the people that just are not going to use your brand or ever talk positively about it. And then you have your apathetics in the middle. That, that's kind of your largest pool of, of people that you're trying to move up to be a slightly more loyal customer or to use you or, or try you. So thinking about things in simple frameworks like that really kind of help you focus on who you're going after. And part of that, the, the research that you'd mentioned, the five S's, it's just simple kind of what get smart techniques that, uh, that we've used for really understanding a, a 
client from a, a digital footprint. So uh, be that site, kind of how many people are coming to the site compared to the, the other sites that they could be going to. Your, your search insights. So what are people actually trying to find? Like, what is it that's motivating them? And they're, they're raising their hands here saying like, this is my issue. Social, what, what are they saying? So obviously social conversations, but not just like how much are they saying something. Early social listening tended to be a lot of just, this is how many people mentioned the brand, but how do we dive deeper using some you know, NLP or, or just, you know, good old fashioned reading the, the text to see what they're saying. Obviously at scale, you want to use technologies that can do it. Syndicated research, your Nielsen's, your MRI's, your Simmons, really start to kind of paint a picture of kind of who those people are and their attitudes in addition to where their, their media behaviors are. And, and finally, just the, the good old survey. There are really inexpensive tools that you could use, even like Google surveys, just to kind of get a, a, a quick taste and a dipstick test of, of what are people think about various topics. Right. And I think that that'll be really helpful. There's obviously lots of, of different, you know, portals of data to look at. And then as you, you know, kind of explained with the Dosakis campaign, it can be very contextual. You know, you guys were just using a simple Google trend search to figure out what was working. So, so to kind of work backwards, I'd love it if you could talk about the biggest blunders, the biggest mistakes you see, like where you're seeing lots of noise that doesn't matter or the sort of missteps you're seeing agencies take in terms of how they understand the data and so on? Sure. Well, I think data obviously means a lot of things to different people. So everyone probably has a very different, unique answer for that. But I think a lot of organizations have focused more on on scale versus the, the data extraction and the value that's coming from it. And so it's, it's building up these massive data warehouses, you know, then just to report on what happened. And I think that's something that I saw and got frustrated with quite a bit agency side was that a lot of these analytics teams were, were putting together dashboard reports and the dashboard almost replaced thinking in their mind where the client wants you to tell them, what should I be doing? So like, why did things happen and, and what do I need to do about it? And so I think that's kind of one of the, the biggest watch outs for this idea of that collecting data is going to make you smarter. You, you need to really put the energy on extracting the, the insight and the Where's the value creation going to come from? I think a lot of other things we've seen too is that in building out a lot of these big infrastructures, we've been telling this kind of tale of unifying all the data, connecting disparate data sets to be this source of truth. And to some extent, we're doing that as best we can. But I've noticed a lot of, you know, little... Uh, exaggerations of exactly how powerful that's going to be and, and what a, a particular team's data set can do that someone else's can't. And I think more of the energies may have gone into selling a, a particular agency's data stack than actually trying to find what, what to do with it. Right. And, and kind of moving on from that, I'd love if you can give some some kind of tangible examples of, of the types of projects you're doing with Buzz Insider and kind of how you're partnering with agencies these days. Sure. So um, just started fairly recently. So working with some some smaller media agencies, really helping them to, to get smart with some of their pitches, understanding the, the consumer landscape and full consumer decision journey work. So kind of what are the personas that we're trying to go after? And as I mentioned before, where are the, the expectations in the category versus where are we delivering and, and trying to figure out what are some of those places that we need to kind of fill in the gaps and working kind of across the, not just within the, the B2C space, but also some, some B2B players and 
working with a few startups trying to do everything from uh, as, as extravagant as uh, moon navigational services. So working with a company called Lunar Station to try to um, figure out how to work with large aerospace companies in order to get organizational and data software embedded in, in their, their facilities that can help them do better understanding of, of lunar missions. Probably the most interesting thing I've got going on at the moment. Yeah, it doesn't get more interesting than that, which you're going interstellar, literally. So that's very cool. And and one one kind of cliche question that I often ask is, is what, what trends are you seeing, you know, either with data or marketing or just the world at large that you find really compelling that you think we should all be paying more attention to? I'm really interested by this whole, the, the, the influencer space, to be honest. It, it sounds a little cliche, but just understanding the value coming back from it. I've done a lot of like work trying to understand that. And I mentioned before, doing the kind of parsing out where's the value coming from within that the media and marketing exchange. And this is an area that's still pretty gray because a lot of things are not directly trackable. Like, you know, LeBron James mentioning his, his you know, favorite flip-flops may not have a, uh, you know, a tracking code on it that we can therefore tie back to, to sales of something. But understanding how uh, people and content are, are going to kind of flip this, what we historically thought as just a, a one-to-many to one-to-one, and how that's going to interplay with the you know, GDPR and CCPA privacy restrictions of the world. Like it, It's easy for them to speak to their audience. It's not as easy for a brand to try to co-opt someone's audience and and, and to to spread messages to them. Yeah, and that was that's one topic that we we haven't covered yet, and that might be a good follow-up episode just to talk about GDPR because that's probably about a fifty-hour rabbit hole we could go down. <laughs> yeah, and then to whatever we hear come up with, uh, I mean, CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act, is is just the first. I'm sure we're going to see uh, other states. And then potentially national issues coming up with it as well. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Matt, thank you so much for your time. Um, how can people get in touch with you? You can find me at um, Buzz Insider. Got three Z's in there, thanks to the uh, two Z's being stolen. <laughs> uh, so it's Matt at B U Z Z Insider.com. B U Z Z Z, right? Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we'll make sure to link it up regardless so people can find it. Matt, thanks for much, so much for being on the show. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll do a follow-up episode on GDPR and how everyone's going to get in trouble and thrown in jail for 20 years for misusing data. Awesome. Thanks so yeah. much for having me. That was good, man. Yeah, take care. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. We will be back next week. Again, today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. And if you're ready to set the right foundation for new business growth, you want to download our agency new business checklist, which you can get by going to saleschema.com slash checklist. Again, saleschema.com slash checklist. Thank you. <laughs>